This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation Expo, the UK and Ireland's leading event for medical device manufacturing. On the 7th and 8th of June, MedTech Innovation Expo will connect leading engineers, innovators and manufacturers with all the technology and innovation they need to facilitate the design and manufacture of life-changing medical devices. For more information, visit www.medtechexpo.com. This episode of the MedTalk Podcast, where we discuss the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, Acting Group Editor of MedTech Innovation and Medical Plastics News. And on this episode, recorded prior to the Christmas break, I'm joined by Sonia Neary, a Digital Health Advocate and Managing Director of Wellola. In this episode, we discuss the appetite for technology when it comes to treating conditions, how to keep people out of hospital if possible, also the current backlogs being seen by health services including that of the NHS and any diversity challenges when it comes to healthcare and technological development. Zanya, thank you very much for joining the Mentor podcast. First of all, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and what it is you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm a chartered physiotherapist by trade. I would have worked for about sort of 15 years in the public and private healthcare sector uh, across Ireland, in Hong Kong for a bit, uh, in the US for a bit. Um, And I'm a big believer that, you know, you should only be cared for in a hospital setting if you're acutely unwell. Um, so that's kind of the foundation of the vision of our company. We set up Willola in 2016 to, you know, support uh, community-based preventative care delivery through digital tools. Um, so, yeah, I'm also a mum of three. I'm based in Ireland and we have a team of about 17 staff now based across Ireland, the UK and further afield. Uh, I find it interesting that you you've instantly touched upon one thing I'd like to dig into, which is the company's vision. Because I think the yeah. company's vision actually ties into a lot of what was a lot, what, a lot of what's coming my way on MedTech Innovation, you know, as my day job as the editor of the magazine. But uh, it, it's fascinating that a lot of the technology seems to be geared towards the preventative elements and trying to keep people out of the hospital. Uh, and this sounds like a pretty obvious question, but how much do you think that COVID has become the catalyst for that? Yeah, I, I think what it opened up for a lot of people was. Uh, a shift in processes across their life you know so where they were used to doing everything in person they had to find alternative means to communicate with one another um, in every you know industry and in personal life you know so you know many of my family members would have done their first online grocery shop (laughs) during COVID you know they figured out how to set up an online bank account uh, some of them you know so so where some of the population would have been doing that for you know a good decade now since we've had iPhones whatever um you know many people were you know putting a toe in the water of doing things digitally for the first time for a very long time um uh and so with healthcare I think that's opened up um the, the fear around Self-management as well as online engagement with healthcare has shifted, you know, so uh, we started doing things like testing ourselves in our home for conditions like that's not ever really been done at that scale. So suddenly we're kind of going, actually, yeah, I can I can buy a kit and I can test myself at home and and I can um, communicate that back to my healthcare professional through, you know, the COVID tracker or whatever it is, you know, so so really kind of there's, I think, a big shift in thinking and the way we lived our lives uh, as well as a shift in thinking in, in how we manage our health. Um, so it has opened up those opportunities to 
word what we call kind of more was of a shared responsibility care model uh, where people are more involved in, in caring for themselves which is I think a really positive thing and one of the only positive things I guess to come out of such a horrendous situation right mm-hmm. yeah I saw once I'm uh, marry up two things here because you actually uh, you actually mentioned about uh, you uh, you're a physio as well yes and um, you, you talk about certain things that you, you're a big believer in care but if it's a, if it's in the it can be done in the home, do it in the home rather than do it in the hospital. I imagine mm-hmm. physio itself is probably one of those more tricky ones where you get it's it's perfectly plausible to do remote physio and tell someone how to do an exercise over 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 a call like like we're on right now. But to actually get them to do the precise exercise in the right way so they're getting the full benefit of physio, I can imagine that's a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends on the area of physiotherapy. Um, Mm. I I always think as well, like digital tools will never exclusively be the only way that healthcare is delivered. Like they're always kind of a in tandem to in-person care, you know, um, and certain scenarios, you know, in-person care is absolutely uh, obligatory, really, you know. So so it's kind of a model that opens up other opportunities for care delivery. Um, with physiotherapy, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about sort of a musculoskeletal injury, it might be, yes, in the initial stages, we need to do some hands-on care. Um, but for example, you know, smoking cessation or cardiac rehab, you know, very much, uh, there's been very successful models where you, you know, join classes online and it's really nice kind of peer-to-peer sharing and learning and in fact you're reaching a much broader audience that may never be able to actually get to the hospital physically to engage with their care this way so in a way you're kind of broadening your reach um, and getting into people's homes and supporting them in a way that maybe they never could have had that level of support Um, and you can do it in, in sort of really exciting and interesting ways like you know you're plugging in wearables you're plugging in devices you're you know joining an online class uh, you're tracking symptoms remotely all of that lovely stuff can can really kind of open up the opportunity for for better health and for kind of, as I said, kind of self-empowerment to get involved in your healthcare a little bit more. Um, there's a really exciting project we're working on in Leeds Teaching Hospital where they're they're trying to kind of, their musculoskeletal department, like bring most of their care pathway digitally. So, you know, typically you break your wrist and, you know, if it's a fairly stable fracture, you know, you go into the ED and six weeks later when the bone's healed, you might come back for a checkup and they review you. What they're trying to do now is kind of get you onto the care pathway digitally you get a letter, you get educational resources. Here's a video about how you manage your, your wound. Here's a video about how you manage your exercises. And then you fill in this form at the end that says, yeah, I'm happy, I'm gonna self-discharge. And suddenly that frees up all of the follow-up appointment space to help with the backlog. So mm-hmm. it's this kind of, you know, there's efficiencies in admin and there's efficiencies in waiting list and there's also the benefits and the outcome clinically for the patient. So there's there's so much opportunity here uh, and there's so many exciting companies delivering this kind of care, you know, so so yeah, it's exciting. With that particular project that you're referring to, because you touched nicely on the backlog, which I'll come on to in a minute. Yeah. Um, can you, is it possible for you to put a number on the kind of time that, that is saving for, for a clinician or what, or what it's saving in terms of hospital resources? So we're launching that project, I think it's January 17th, um, Mm. and we're really looking hard at the analytics of that um, to see kind of what the benefits would be. But, you know, I mean, one of the organisations we're working with see about 250,000 patients a year in their minor injuries, (laughs) you know, Mm. know, and, you know, so if you're saying, okay, well, 50% of them engage with the portal because, you know, portal uptake these days is around that know are we saying half of that list won't need to come back and most of those are kind of you know 15 20 minute sessions that you're saving on so you could do a back of the envelope calculation fairly quickly that you're probably saving at least one staff member a year you know um but that's just that example 
so yeah, I'd love to come back to you uh, to give you the update on, on our analytics after we've run that project for a few months. In that case, I'll come back to you about six months down the line on yeah. that one then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, absolutely. But we, uh, we, we touched on the backlog there and as the situation currently stands and in your time working within healthcare, yeah. have you ever come across a backlog on this scale before? Uh, no, um, I, you know, no, like in, in terms of sort of with the organisations we're speaking with, you know, cancer times, ambulance times, all of these have been, I suppose, progressively declining since about 2010. Um, and I know sort of pre-pandemic, it was about sort of, you know, four and a half million uh, waiting for NHS treatments. You know, now they're sort of publishing about seven million. But, you know, that's what's published. I think on top of that, you're sort of talking about maybe one and a half million in mental health treatment, uh, another one and a half you know, million waiting for, you know, musculoskeletal or allied healthcare uh, follow up. So I'd say that the true waiting list is probably in excess of about 10 million. Um, I don't think anyone has seen uh, a waiting list of that length for a very long time, if, if ever. Um, and I suppose it's tied in with a lot of, you know, years of austerity, you know, kind of a limited workforce strategy in the NHS that, you know, Brexit making the UK a little bit less desirable for um, healthcare workers from outside of the UK to come and stay. And then, you know, all of those other financial and operational pressures. Plus, then you throw a pandemic in the mix, right? And um, like, <laughs> sorry, this is all very negative, but, you know, yeah, in the it, UK, it just sounds like the imperfect storm, really. I know it's shocking. And and like in the UK, you do, you do have lower beds per population. You know, you do have liar, lower numbers of diagnostic machines per head of population, lower clinicians per head of population and you know Ireland is struggling in the exact same way you know um but it, it is you know it is a really as you say a perfect storm and it's 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 really challenging because having worked in those really sometimes quite challenging stressful healthcare environments I really feel for the people on the front line like it's it's a very it's a particularly difficult time for those people that are offering their time in that environment you, you mentioned about similar struggles that are <laughs> taking place in Ireland as well because yeah but You've mentioned quite a few things that are probably are local to the UK, but there there is there is sort of an an international issue as well as the local issues as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, and and they're all the same, you know. So, so we're looking to work. I mean, we we work in Ireland. We work in care homes, in primary care, in acute and mental. We we work across all of those environments, um, and in Germany as well. All of all of the you know markets that we're working in, they all have the same struggles. You know, it's 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 a really really challenging time for healthcare, but it's it's out of those challenges that these innovations are thriving because we do have opportunities to share, um, to, to create, you know, to collaborate, to find new ways to offload what ultimately will be a finite healthcare workforce. You know, we're we're living longer. <laughs> so this has gotten really negative really fast, but. We're living longer with chronic conditions, you know, and there's only so many talented healthcare providers. So we have to start, you know, taking some responsibility and, you know, being supported by those healthcare providers to care for ourselves. Um, I think a lot of it is to do with sharing data successfully, you know, like like that in the hospital, when I worked in in an acute setting, I'd have all these notes about you. Like I'd have your blood test, your x-rays, the medical op, the the op notes, Mm. my notes, the works. And then, you know, say you had a knee replaced and you'd go home, you'd have all this lovely rich data about what was happening for you, you know, like that the wound was oozing, you know, you you, you stopped taking the antibiotics because they made you feel sick, you didn't know how to manage, so you started getting really anxious and depressed and maybe not mobilizing, like, and wouldn't it be fantastic if those data sets could be shared, like if I could be informed about what was happening for you and if you could be more informed about what was happening you know in terms of the 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 test results the x-rays the recommendations the education from the hospital 
it's that it's that bit that's really disconnected. We all have, you know, our really valuable data sets, but they're not connected. And that's where I think if we can if we can, you know, tidy up that bridge, uh, we can really support that really busy healthcare person and that really kind of traumatized patient to have a better experience uh, in their healthcare. Connectivity and interoperability are two things that well connect the same same thing or two sides of the same coin at least in terms sure. of just bringing everything together. But there's actually an, another aspect I want to pick up on in terms of technology because yeah, uh, because you talked about the power of preventative care. That's it's what you're about. So what tools will we have at our disposal now that can make this more of a reality? So what what should we be using more of? Interesting. Um, so. I think most of the tools that are available on the market are either about handling administrative data back and forth, you know, that, across that bridge where patients can manage their appointments, uh, they can manage di- digital letters, um, fill in forms online, send messages back and forth with their provider. And then the other half would be much more clinical, you know, so connecting your devices, connecting your wearables, uh, medical grade device connectivity, video consultation, sharing of kind of patient health records and things like that. So I think broadly speaking, you can see a lot of sort of point solutions and platform solutions on the market that are trying to do one or other of those, like share administrative data or share clinical data. Um, And I think, yeah, you know, a lot of the organizations that we talk to have some very slick tools in place, you know, so um, we have a platform that's sort of designed to sort of Lego blocks around what you have and support you as your needs grow. So we have like nine modules, half of them are administrative, half of them are clinical. Many organizations are sort of dipping a toe in the admin administrative side because they can very clearly see the benefits, you know, like so like the NHS spent like, a, you know, 120 million on post in 2019, about a billion on patients not showing up every year, you know, 8% or so of patients don't show up for OPDs. So saving on things like appointment management and digital letters, you know, that's really good straight away, you know, sustainability, you know, you're reducing post, you're reducing paper, you're reducing admin, big savings there. But I think where we need to sort of start thinking more ambitiously is around kind of taking care pathways digital and you're starting to see lots of that sort of virtual ward um, management of people from home you know and again during COVID I think a lot of organizations were very quickly trying to find uh, tools that help them to kind of keep cardiovascular patients at home and potentially you know the respiratory patients that were stable get them out get them cared for at home Um, so we're starting to see you know medical device connectivity sending in data to the hospital and allowing patients to be supported remotely things like that so um, for me I think the future is very much about uh, identifying care pathways which you can kind of you know move to a digital process like that example that I spoke about, the kind of, you know, the stable orthopedic patient that could be kind of taken onto a care pathway to self-manage. And then also those kind of really, you know, the chronic conditions, like those of us living with, you know, diabetes and asthma and, you know, long-term heart conditions, where, you know, it's a revolving door for these patients that are kind of up and down and illness and wellness and in and out of the hospital. Can we find a way to kind of routinely have a check-in touch point where they send us there, you know, whatever objective metrics they're getting off their devices, fill in their kind of symptom tracker, fill in a basic assessment and get that data into the hospital so the clinicians can start prioritizing. Okay, well, these guys here are like red alert patients. Let's bring them in and review them. These guys are amber. They're doing fine. They're ticking along. These these guys are green. And in fact, we can just maybe drop them down to review them every two years. You know, it's it's that level of insight and information and analytics can really help us to prioritize who really needs to get seen acutely in the hospital, who can manage themselves and who needs a little bit. Of, you know, it's that kind of mm. like that's the utopian vision, right? 
Yeah. That's, the, that's the dream scenario. But I, I, again, what's stopping us? We have the technology. You know, it's just about using it safely. It's about interoperating as best we can. Um, and it's about kind of bringing the patient along with that. And I think they're kind of, as I said at the top of the call, they're starting to be accepting of that care model, right? So, yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunity here. Entries are now open for this year's MedSec Innovation Award categories, which seeks to celebrate the vital work of the medical device engineering community. Taking place alongside the prestigious MediLink UK Healthcare Business Awards on the 7th of June, MedTech Innovation Awards are open to submissions across six categories, 3D printing, connected health, design, manufacturing excellence, materials innovation, and sustainability. For more information, visit medtechawards.com. I think you actually answered one of the follow-up questions I was going to say there oh, in, terms of, okay. in terms of is, is technology being deployed effectively? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you've listed a lot of things there which would suggest maybe not. Maybe there are things that are, can be done better. Is there anything that's being done really well right now that, the, that they can almost follow as a model in terms of implementation? Yes. Um... So again, back to that that example of Leeds Teaching Hospital Trust, this gentleman, Sam Volans, he's an orthopod, he's really quite visionary, and he has a very simple model where uh, patients go onto their site, they get a series of educational videos, like it's a very simple, you know, it's cost effective, there's not much involved in kind of saying, okay, well, once something happens, have a look at these training videos and fill in this assessment, like that isn't rocket science technology. But it's really effective and it's really accessible. Importantly, it's really accessible for, for service users. Um, so that kind of model is obviously working really well. There's, there's, I know there's kind of a mixed kind of response to, say, messaging as a module. You know, So a lot of the providers that you talk to, they're very keen on having messaging outbound. They like to be able to send messages outbound to their individual patients or a broad uh, audience to say, here's some educational resources, or, you know, we have the norovirus on Ward B today, please don't come in. Or actually, Joe, this is an exercise program for you. Like, they're very keen on outbound messaging. The inbound messaging piece has variable uptake, you know. So in, in you know, GP practices, for example, if you're switching on messaging inbound, it can be this monster feed that they're not necessarily resourced up to handle. So I think it's about looking at the workflows and the needs of the organizations that are really kind of stressed at the front line and saying like what can we do to offload um so for example the outbound messaging going well inbound not so much um video consultations as well has a variable you know so if, if i was to take you to i'm thinking of each of the modules in our system video consultations mm-hmm. for example really good when you're talking about bringing people together into a class environment or reaching someone who's really struggling from a mental health care perspective, who's not that comfortable to get into their car today to come for a session in your office. You know, those kinds of things are really obvious uh, wins. But again, in primary care, it's not been very sticky. People prefer to pick up the phone because their workflows are uh, really, you know, high end and it's just quicker for them to just dial a number and, and talk to the patient that way. So I think trying to figure out what works is about really understanding the environment and the context um, and analyzing the workflows and trying to fit the technology best within those workflows that they don't disrupt the workflow, but that they optimize it. And not necessarily that you're just switching out letters for digital letters, but what are you doing to optimize that flow? Is it about actually making the letters available in, you know, multiple formats for people that have, you know, issues like dyslexia and so on? Like, how can you actually improve the, the experience, not just change it, but optimize it? Um so yeah, things that are working. Are, yeah, I do believe all of those kinds of examples of 
monitoring cardiac, you know, cardiorespiratory patients remotely. Um, you know, big wins in 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 that sort of arena are happening, uh, where where people are, you know, acutely unwell in the hospital, they kind of stabilize and they're sent home a little earlier. I mean, you know, if a hospital bed is costing, you know, 400 pounds a day or thereabouts, you know, you're able to turn that over and it's much more cost effective. It's some of the uh, John Hopkins at home kind of hospital at home care models are showing kind of 52 percent savings to care for someone at home, you know. So uh, that kind of being able to turn over the use of the bed and making sure someone is. And, and anyway, you'd prefer to be cared for at home, wouldn't you? Like you wouldn't want to be in the bed if you could help it. So it's a no brainer for all involved. Um so yes, but to answer your question, I think certain, you know, I think I think that whole digitizing the care pathway, you know, be it in a prehabilitation state or a post-acute kind of phase, is is a real, you know, that seems to be what's proving successful. The virtual wards, the virtual monitoring, the remote monitoring, um, but it's only happening at a very small scale. And what will be great is to start seeing that really scale up. It's um, within your answer there. I was I actually came up with like a little analysis in my head. It seems to me that you can have the best will in the world, you can have the best technology in the world, you need to sort the environment out. So it's a bit like if you've got a jigsaw puzzle, no point in putting the wrong piece in that hole. It's mm. not just not going to fit. <clears throat> yeah, no. And and busy clinicians and busy admin teams do not have time to be tinkering around with stuff that isn't integrated or easy to use. You know, like I think that's fundamental is that there's a single sign-on or a single login to whatever they're used to working with on their daily basis. And there's a kind of a seamless workflow through to whatever other technology they're using because, yeah, it's 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 very hard. You know, and they're sometimes working with quite hard, uh, old hardware and legacy systems, and, and that's very stressful in its own right. So you got to think about making sure that anything new that's brought in should be meeting certain standards around that interoperability and usability piece. A lot of uh, what I come across, they always say that you need good data to, you know, to implement something successfully. And I, and this is where diversity comes into it for me, because the broader picture that you have, whether you are t- testing or testing in certain environments, whether that's re- different regions or, you know, uh, you, know you, you need you need a good mix of the po- good mix of the population, both in terms of both the hospital and in, in the patient setting. When it comes to diversity in the sector, do you think we're actually seeing it being, how can I put this, we're actually, we're actually seeing it adequately represented when it, when it, when it comes to implementation of certain systems that, requ- that require it? Yeah, I mean, we always work with patient focus groups. Um, most of the organisations that we work with in the NHS have a kind of a dedicated patient team that, you know, are... They volunteer their time to, you know, analyze your technology. They're usually brought in at the discovery phase when they're even, you know, even when they're choosing a provider. Um, you know, I did a demo in Birmingham where loads of patients were on the call making decisions about um, the providers that they wanted to work with. And I think that's superb. I think that's exactly how it should be. Um, I, I think, yeah, I mean, you're right. You you can run the risk when you implement something digitally of leaving people behind. And I think that's a really valid concern and a valid consideration. And that's why, you know, you know, exhaustive kind of, you know, user workshops, uh, making sure that whatever tools are put in front of service users' hands are um, easy to use, easy to read, easy to understand, using layman's terms, you know, avoiding kind of tech jargon or clinical jargon that's not digestible um and there's work involved in that you know so for example 
um, one organization that we're working with are, are taking their assessments online. And at the moment, all those assessments are used to being completed by people like me, like, you know, medical, you know, clinical teams. And sort of we're saying, okay, well, how do we make that assessment something that's suitable to put into my granny's hands and that she can take that and answer that with ease. And so it's it's as much about the language and the kind of revision of what you have to make sure it's digestible for patients and the technology that you're using with always the caveat and the understanding that not everyone's going to take up on that and that's okay. And to make sure that that is considered in the workflow, that there is an option A and an option B. Um, one of the areas that we're working on is we're trying to get some grant funding to work with uh, the Hill in Oxford around optimizing accessibility of the system. Like it's a real bug bear of mine that, you know, if you've got a spinal cord injury or, um, you know, a physical disability, like not everyone's going to be able to sort of pick up the mobile phone and engage with an app that way. So you should really be pushing the boundaries as an organization to think, OK, well, what about voice enablement? What about eye tracking? You know, there's no point in building tools that are for the tech savvy, able bodied people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're not the users of the system. You know, you need to have that. And I think most of the organizations we work with have that very much at the forefront of their mind. You know, they're very concerned about making sure accessibility is is top of the list when they're implementing anything new. Um, so, yeah, I would really again, it'd be fantastic. And I think Orca are doing a really good job of kind of looking at that and analyzing products that come to market to make sure not only are they meeting sort of cybersecurity standards, et cetera, but that accessibility standards are being met as well. Um, yeah, it's okay. an important point to address for sure. It is. Sonia, thank you very much for your time today. Before we finish, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Oh, wow. Um, gosh, <laughs> I'm not normally lost for words. Um, <laughs> I mean, thank you for including me. It's it's uh, it's an exciting time for us and my company. You know, as I said, we're working with Birmingham Community NHS Foundation Trust, Leeds Teaching Hospital Trust. We're in care homes in Ireland and primary care in Ireland. Uh, we're sort of agnostic to the buying organisation that works with us. So yeah, I mean, for any sort of potential collaborators or partners that are listening, you know, we're always open to to hearing the needs and and uh, supporting where we can. So thank you. Thank you very much, Sonia.